All right, well, if you want to turn with me now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, that's where we will be diving back in once again tonight to this wonderful book that tells the story, of course, of early Christianity and the church in its earliest stages of infancy. And this is a journey we've been making, really, for well over a year, actually. I went back to see how long it's been. It's been longer than our YouTube uh, data goes back. So it's been longer than a year at this point, which is pretty impressive. We've been working our way through this book. And over the past few weeks, basically since the time of Mark's sabbatical, we've been making our way through the story of Paul in Jerusalem. And last week, we saw Paul finally uh, leave Jerusalem under a pretty interesting situation, of course. If you remember, this actually wasn't last week, excuse me, this is two weeks ago. But Paul was in custody, you may remember, uh, with the Roman guards in the city of Jerusalem who were basically protecting him from the Jews who were seeking to kill him. When he hears from his nephew that there was a plot to ambush him, and to kill him uh, as he was being taken from the Roman barracks to the Jewish council for more questioning amongst the Sanhedrin. That is both the leaders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they requested that he come, but there was a plot, an ambush of about 40, so, 40 or so men who are going to attack him and kill him. And so once this is heard about the tribune, the Roman tribune, the sort of leader of the, the troop stationed in, uh, in Jerusalem, he hears about this and he, of course, sends Paul on his way to Caesarea. So Caesarea would have been northwest of Jerusalem, stationed on the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was a port city of the Judean region. And so Paul is sent up there for more questioning to meet with the emperor Felix. And so this is where we find ourselves tonight. Paul finally about to get his hearing before the or not emperor, excuse me, governor Felix, who is sort of a small, lesser important leader of the region. As we'll see next time, next week, uh, there's a more important leader, the king. But Felix is important nonetheless. And so that's where we find ourselves for tonight's part of the story. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Our God, we come before you to read your word now and to listen to you, to tune out all things of this world and to listen only to your word, only to you. And so, Lord, as we do, as we dive in here to Acts 24, We ask that you would help us to understand this story, to meditate on this story, and to seek to learn all that we can from it for our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear now the word of the living God from Acts 24, where we're going to be reading verses 1 all the way through 27. Not actually what's on the, the insert or the bulletin. So here's what we read. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down, that is from Jerusalem, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your, in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation they should have, if they should have anything to, against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, excuse me, <coughs> and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Around the time I was in middle school, my grandmother, who had been living in the town of Chowchilla, not too far from here, and my aunt, who lived with her, moved from Chowchilla, their farm, out on the river or the slough of Chowchilla, and they moved about a block down the street from me and my childhood home and my family in Kingsburg. 
And this created a lot of great things for my parents. It gave them a place for us to go when they needed to get rid of the kids and to go on a date or to run errands or to go to Costco, which was really kind of two in the same for, uh, for my parents. It was sort of a two birds with one stone. My dad would always call it the Costco date. Uh, but another great thing it allowed was for me and my siblings to go to my grandma's house whenever we got sick during the day. My mom then wouldn't have to stay home from work where she worked as a kindergarten teacher, but she would just allow us to go down to their house. And so we would sit. And while I generally liked doing this, I liked my grandma and my aunt. They were awesome. Uh, I didn't always like watching daytime television. My aunt was a fanatic about daytime television, and she would spend most of her day watching exactly that. And so I can remember being very bored watching soap operas. This was before cable or or any sort of satellite TV. And so I would sort of just tune out uh, whenever those shows were on, but usually around lunchtime or right before, if I remember correctly, two shows would come on that would perk my interest a little bit. And one of those shows, which was my lesser favorite of the two, one of those shows was Judge Judy. Uh, the other one was the show Cops. That was my favorite show. Uh, the song was great. I'll never get that song out of my head. I won't repeat it here, however, just so you guys don't have it in your heads either. But one of these shows, Judge Judy, was sort of my introduction as a young boy to the judicial system in America. And I realize now that Judge Judy is not exactly very realistic. It was technically real court cases, but it wasn't really a realistic show in that most cases aren't so cut and dry and simple. Uh, and so... One of the things, though, that I learned was that there are arguments that take place between adults. And sometimes arguments can be so deep and so uh, powerful between two different parties that they need to have a judge to sit and to arbitrate between them. And so while this wasn't my favorite show, again, I loved cops much more than Judge Judy. It was it was interesting and it was certainly better than soap operas. And so I thought in watching that show that judicial uh, happenings weren't exactly the most interesting thing. But I think here in the book of Acts in chapter 24, as we look at Paul and his case before the judge or the governor, Felix, things actually are quite a bit more interesting. By contrast, between Judge Judy's uh, cases, we have Paul here with his life on the line. It was a matter of life and death, whether he was going to be acquitted and he would go free, or whether he was going to be sent back to Jerusalem where the Jews would be able to do with him whatever they wanted. And so there was, there's a lot more here. And so as I found myself reading this this week, I, I discovered how interesting this story was and how much was riding on the line. So as we can see from verses 2 and following, There's this man that's brought with the Jews. They come down. The Sanhedrin comes down along with some elders and a spokesman or a a sort of a a lawyer or an attorney whose name is Tertullus. And Tertullus begins to lay out the case against Paul by insisting, again, in no uncertain terms, that Paul was nothing more than a riotous rabble-rouser. He was someone that just inflamed the city and got everyone working up in in a fit. And so he was creating all this trouble, and he was uh, the leader of this sect 
of the Nazarenes, as Tertullus puts it. And Tertullus then even goes so far as to say he profaned the temple. This is a reference, no doubt, to the false assumption that that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple courts past where he was supposed to go, which, of course, wasn't true. Paul did not do this. Uh, There's no proof of it even, and that's part of the court case here. Uh, But all of this reveals that Paul really was the ringleader of a splinter group in some sense, and he was thus the central figure in what the Romans would consider a intra-Jewish debate. And so the clear subtext, however, here, though, is not just that he was the leader of this group, but that by doing so, by being the leader, he was someone who was going to cause Rome a lot of trouble. And so, it's all as if Tertullus was saying in his argument in these first few verses, hey, look, Felix, this guy Paul, he's a real pest, you know. It's interesting that he calls him a plague or a pestilence. He's a real pest, not only for us, but also for you. For wherever he goes, Felix, the masses descend into chaos and riots, and they just seem to break out wherever he, wherever he lands. Not only in Jerusalem, but even in far-off places like the city of Ephesus, where a riot started. Maybe you'll remember hearing about that. And so if you want to spare yourself the drama and the headache of having this man, all you need to do is just give him over to us, and we'll make sure we do the right thing with him. The irony of this, of course, is that Paul, and Paul even slightly gestures at this uh, in his ensuing defense, the irony is that Paul wasn't the one who started the riotous madness in Jerusalem. It wasn't his fault at all. As we've seen over the past few weeks, as we've been studying these chapters, Paul went to the temple with the simple motivation. Maybe you'll remember it. It was simply to show his respect for the Jewish faith as a Jewish man himself. Paul was not in any way preaching a doctrine that said, I'm not Jewish. He's, he was preaching a faith that said, the fulfillment of all the promises has come. This is real Judaism. This is the Christian faith. That was Paul's message. And so he goes to the temple in order to show his respect for the law, for the temple, to show his respect for these traditions, and to show that he wasn't against the Old Testament or the teaching of Moses, the law of Moses. And so by going to the temple to participate in this vow of purification, His hope was to assure all of Jerusalem, including the Sanhedrin, that he was still a reverent disciple of the Jewish faith. And again, Christianity is not then just a split-off group. It's actually the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. But interestingly, I think it's fair to say that a similar phenomenon is actually taking place in some way in the Christian Reformed Church today. And I point to it only to really clarify the situation here in the book of Acts. Essentially, though, we find ourselves in a situation where, just like with Paul, there's a good bit of what I could call victim blaming going on, uh, which is pretty much just where a victim is the one blamed for all the things that are going on, whatever harm befell the victim. And so in this case, Paul the victim is being blamed for causing a riot, when in reality it was the Jews who started the riot and did so in order to kill him. They, they saw him and started a riot, started kicking up dust and throwing things, uh, it sort of points out, and so they are blaming it on him. 
And so the same exact thing happened all the way back in Acts 19 again, where Paul was in the city of Ephesus and a riot breaks out because of the the blacksmiths there who are uh, upset about how this may affect their industry as they make idols for the city, for the temple of Artemis. They tried to pin all of that on Paul as well. So you may be wondering, well, how is this sort of thing happening in the CRC? I don't see any riots. There's nobody throwing things or kicking up dust in the CRC. But I would say in some ways a similar thing is happening where over the past few years our denomination has been studying, of course, and discerning what to do with the so-called Human Sexuality Report or the HSR, which among other things affirmed the traditional viewpoint on human sexuality. And I've heard a lot of talk uh, over the years, especially in my time at Synod last year and in conversations now uh, following Synod this year where the HSR was affirmed and then this year reaffirmed. I've heard a lot of talk about how Christians who uphold that view are being divisive. They're being divisive. You're trying to separate the church. You're acting schismatically, I've heard, uh, because you're disobeying, the, the accusation goes, you're disobeying Paul's command in Ephesians to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How dare you act divisively and seek to uh, depose or seek to discipline anyone who acts outside of our covenanted beliefs. And so, therefore, in a sort of strange twist of irony in the CRC, the situation is such that those who now hold to the beliefs that we've always held to, not only in the CRC, but in the church Catholic, the historic global church all throughout history, those of us who hold to these views are now being accused as somehow acting divisively or schismatically, and thus standing opposed to the spiritual unity so often called for in the New Testament. Despite the fact, however, that it's the more progressive or affirming side of our denomination who have been bringing in these new strange doctrines into our fellowship and have been teaching what goes against the clear teaching of the creeds and of the catechisms and most importantly God's word. And so frankly, as we've seen in this past synod, if anybody's been following along with what's going on, it's not those, I would say, who are holding fast to the word of God who are being divisive. But it's those who, contrary to God's word, are rejecting historic Christian teaching in the realm of sexuality, who are taking up instead what Paul calls in Ephesians for every wind of doctrine of human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, brothers and sisters, as a general rule of thumb, one simple lesson we can take from this is to never allow someone to slander you as being divisive on account of your holding fast to a doctrine of the Christian faith that has been believed and taught by Christians everywhere, always, and by all. It's a historic belief, and we're not exactly being divisive by sticking to what has always been taught. It's not divisive, certainly, for me to hold fast to the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, despite how my doing so might make 
Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons feel. They claim to be Christians. And so they may say, well, if you hold to the Trinity, therefore you're being divisive. You're being a divisive Christian by breaking us apart from one another. And I would say, no, if anything, it would be you who are going against the, the historic teaching of the church. And you are the one who is being divisive, seeking to upend the bedrock truths of our faith. And I would want you to be united with me in the truth. And so furthermore, it's not divisive for ordained pastors or leaders of the church to bring, to bring peddlers of false doctrine to account for holding and teaching false doctrine in our church. Quite the contrary, for the sake of unity, such actions are necessary in the life of the church. When it has been detected and confirmed to be false teaching, we must act on it. And that, uh, I believe, is exactly what's taking place in the CRC right now. And so just like Paul is here about to do, we will too also need to stand prepared to make a defense of ourselves when false and slanderous accusations are made against us. And so in verses 20 or 10 through 21, Paul gets up and starts to make his defense. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Jews, in seeking to sort of uh, whip up as strong of a case that they could, they bring not only the Sanhedrin, the, elder, the leaders, and then also the elders, but they bring a professional. They bring this man, Tertullus, with them, again, who was a sort of attorney or lawyer to give their case some professional backbone. But here in verse 10, we see Paul simply standing up by himself. The Lone Ranger making his defense for himself. And what's more than that is that Paul actually, or maybe at this point we could say unsurprisingly, does a very marvelous job. He excels in making his defense. And so once again, this ought to remind us of Jesus' words recorded by the same author, Luke, in his gospel in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say when you are put on trial in the synagogues and before the leaders and rulers and authorities. And so what does Paul's case look like? What, is his, what case does he make for himself? It's quite simple, but we could sort of break it down into five basic points to sort of get what Paul is saying. So first, in verses 14 and 15, Paul concedes and he confesses to that which is not a crime. So he, he says, yes, I, that, that's true of me. He's conceding to something that's not actually wrong. He says that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Notice that he's joining himself to what's historically been believed, sort of similar to how those of us in the CRC are doing right now. And he says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he's placing himself uh, as a historic Jew. He believes traditional Jewish doctrine. He hasn't changed that. All he has been saying in his proclamation is that there's this Messiah. And this Messiah now is the fulfillment of all that's been taught before. And so secondly... And I should say there on the first point, his case that he's pointing out, he's getting at, is a theological argument, which he'll make at the end. So his second point, verse 17, he defends his virtue and his moral purity and his sort of goodness, his innocence, by explaining what was the true purpose of his visit to Jerusalem. And so he says that he came to bring alms to 
his nation and to present offerings. And so we see this really actually a lot in Paul's letters. This is the only mention of it in the book of Acts, which is fascinating. But throughout Paul's letters, he'll often talk about making a collection from Gentile churches that he's going to take to Jerusalem. And so he mentions that here. That was his purpose, to come, to give this, these alms, and to present offerings. That is, to go into the temple and to make offerings to the Lord. And so, in other words, he's being peaceful in his, in his intentions, So third, in verse 18, Paul flatly rejects their accusations of seditious behavior by stating that while he was presenting his offerings in the temple, he was found by the Jews having been purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, he says. And so in stating this claim, Paul seems to be subtly turning the argument that's been made against him. Now he's taking it and beginning to turn it against his accusers, slyly pointing out that it was not he who caused the riots, but that it was them. They were the ones who caused the riots. He came in and he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was taking a vow of purification. And so the implications here of his argument is that he was innocent, and it was they who created the dust-up. Which is interesting because 15 or so years from this time, the Jews would create such a tension that, again, they would cause the, the Roman nation, the empire, to come and to lay siege on Jerusalem in order to put an end to uh, the threats of sedition that the Jews were, were making. And so forth, uh, in verse 19... Paul points out that the true accusers are not even present at the trial. That's an interesting point that he makes. And he's implying here that according to Roman law, which we actually know from historians doing their work, the case should be thrown out and dismissed entirely. If the true accusers, the ones who saw what he did, aren't even there to make their accusations known, really what should happen is that this court case should be dismissed out of hand. It should not even be happening at this point. And so fifth and finally, his final point, as I've sort of hinted at already, which we see in verses 20 and 21 and also in 14 and 15, is that Paul concludes his case by insisting that the real reason he's run afoul of these Jewish leaders and authorities is purely theological, particularly in regards to his views of the resurrection of the dead. And that this whole dust-up, the whole reason he's in prison, uh, was not something then that Rome needed to concern itself with and not something that Rome could actually do anything about anyways. It was sort of an in-house debate, as we've seen in the past few weeks. Not something that Rome particularly cared or was interested in getting involved with. And so, having made what many scholars consider to be an airtight case on his own behalf, we might assume that uh, Paul would just be dismissed and uh, the claims against him would just be rejected. But as Methodist Bible scholar Craig Keener points out, other factors being equal, he says, any impartial Roman judge would have dismissed the case at this point. Unfortunately, however, Paul's current accusers were Felix's most powerful Judean associates. 
And Felix was not a just judge. Had Paul not been a Roman citizen with some allies, not to mention with the support of the Roman tribune who sent the letter in the last chapter saying, uh, we found nothing wrong with him. He has a theological debate going on. Uh, Felix would surely have handed him over, he says. Such miscarriages of justice were frequent in the Roman provinces. Excuse me. Sorry, we're back now. And so, wanting neither to provoke the frustration of the Jews, nor to deal with the repercussions of unjustly sentencing a Roman citizen, which would get Felix himself in trouble, what does Felix decide to do? Well, the final line of the passage tells us and spells it out for us that he, desiring to to keep the Jews happy, to do them a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so in other words, Felix's decision was to make no decision at all, but to instead to make an excuse and to kick the can down the road, to bide his time. And so verse 23 gives us a few more details of what this entailed for Paul, what this looked like while Paul was continuing to sit in prison in Caesarea. We see that it wasn't all that bad. We see in verse 23 where it says, Felix then gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so the inclusion of this uh, detail of this information is that Paul had a relatively light custody and that this we can sort of infer from this that Felix probably knew that Paul was really innocent, but he didn't want to upset the Jews because he wanted to keep the peace with with the Jews who were sort of the main players in his province that he was the governor of. And so he left Paul to sit uh, behind bars. But perhaps uh, there's a more interesting detail here, uh, even more interesting than what Paul's custody looked like. And it comes in the final verses of the chapter, in verses 24 through 27, where we're given some intriguing insight on the nature of the relationship that Paul then shared with Felix and also with Felix's Jewish wife named Drusilla uh, during his imprisonment. And so despite his unwillingness to make a final decision, Felix was apparently intrigued by the intellectual prowess of Paul. Or perhaps we might say that it could have been that Drusilla, being a Jewish woman with a Gentile husband, maybe she wanted to positively impact her husband. And so maybe she was the one that was uh, sort of leading the charge and getting them to talk to Paul and to go down and to call for him and to interact with him. Uh, We don't know exactly what the reason was. But whatever the case, Luke tells us in verse 24 that after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Two verses earlier, in verse 22, Luke already informed us that Felix had a rather acute knowledge of the way, or accurate, excuse me, of the Christian faith and message. We can sort of 
uh, infer here again that as the governor of this province, where there were Christians already, actually before Paul went to Jerusalem to start with, he was in this same city of Caesarea, meeting with Christians there. That was where he was warned not to go to Jerusalem, but he proceeded anyways to go to Jerusalem. So we know that there is a group of Christians already in this city of Caesarea. And so it's presumable then that Felix, wanting to sort of keep an eye on what's going on in his province, uh, would have maybe inquired about what this Christian faith was all about, what this sect of the Nazarenes taught and believed. And so perhaps it was him that was just the curious one, wanting to learn more about this faith and to see what all the fuss was about. Now he has sort of the main guy uh, sitting in prison that he can listen to and get it right from the horse's mouth. So at any rate, what we read in verse 25, though, is telling. It's really interesting. And it says this, And he, and as he, that is Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, this information is perhaps the most interesting information of the entire chapter. Here we have Paul, a vulnerable prisoner, sitting before this authority figure, the one who has the authority to decide his fate, whether life or death. And what does Paul decide to preach about? Three things, we're told. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And we can assume for the record that given Felix's response, this wasn't just some entertaining academic lecture that Paul was giving to Felix, but that it was actually a very intentional preaching of the gospel. He was trying to make a direct uh, impact on Felix and to preach to his heart, and ostensibly in an effort to persuade him to be a follower of this Nazarene man, Jesus, for himself. And if this wasn't exciting enough for us, it may be helpful to know that Felix and Drusilla were known for their own sexual sin. Uh, Felix has an interesting background story, which you can go online and research and study. Uh, But he actually started out as a slave, became a freed man, and rose through the ranks of power, and now had landed this great position as the governor of Judea, which was kind of one of the uh, out-of-sight, out-of-mind provinces. But still, he was a governor. He'd come a long way. And this was actually his third wife who he procured. She was a Jewish woman. She was married to another man, actually to a king of a minor kingdom not too far away. And through the the work of a Jewish uh, magician from, the, from Cyprus, this is all interesting information, right? Uh, he actually somehow got the magician to convince her to leave her husband and to marry him. And so she did this. She would have been in her late teenage years when she did this. And so she effectively committed adultery. They were known then for being an adulterous couple. He wooed her away from her husband, and now he had taken her for himself. And so it's interesting then that Paul, what does Paul teach? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And the lessons here abound for us. The lessons here of this teaching that Paul gives, though not much is said, the lessons are interesting and we should try to perk up our ears and listen to what is going on. So we could first say that given the enormous pressure that Paul was under, we need to learn from his boldness to preach the gospel, 
to Felix and Drusilla. The full gospel he preaches here. Uh, Not just the kind of gospel that was positive or encouraging, but the kind of gospel that had the power effectively to alarm or to disturb his listener. To make him feel a little bit uncomfortable even. Paul knew his gospel might have made the situation worse. He knew that this man, if he was to upset him enough, may just give him over to the Jews who wanted to take his life. And as Paul himself once said, and you may famously remember, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Here was a golden opportunity to preach the gospel to a governor of a Roman province. This was an early opportunity for Christianity to have an effect on someone in a serious position of power. And Paul took it, knowing it may cost him everything. Secondly, it's interesting to consider what each of these three aspects are about that Paul refers to. Righteousness, self-control, or temperance, you might, might say, and the coming judgment. And why Paul decided to emphasize these three aspects of the gospel in his preaching. Why these three things? Luke doesn't tell us. And while opinions vary greatly, I think it's likely the case, my suspicion at least, uh, that given the rest of what we know about Paul, particularly from Paul's own letters, when he's preaching righteousness, he's not preaching necessarily our need for righteousness. He could have been doing that. Maybe he was telling uh, Felix, you've been unrighteous. The same word actually in Greek as you've been unjust. Uh, he was known as an unjust ruler, an unjust judge. So it's possible that Paul was telling Felix of his injustice as a ruler and that he was, had been a, a bad ruler of the region. That could be the case. But I think given Paul's corpus, his body of writing, it's far more likely that Paul was teaching of the righteousness of God in Christ given for sinners to be saved from God's judgment. And what's meant by self-control then, if that's what he meant by righteousness, it's probably the case that that by self-control he meant to say that as we receive Christ's righteousness, we then need to learn to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit, uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit, is that we will have self-control. We will learn then to have mastery over our flesh, our sinful desires, and learn more and more to be uh, conformed to the pattern of God's Word, to live more and more like Christ, as it were. And finally, what's meant by the coming judgment? Well, I think this is fairly clear. Uh, We can assume that this is about the judgment we will all face in the end. God will raise everyone, the just and the unjust, and he will judge everyone and send those who are followers and believers in Christ into eternal bliss and those who have rejected Christ into eternal damnation. And so Paul very clearly goes straight to these things. These are not popular subjects, not popular topics. Christians today don't often like to talk about the coming judgment, yet for whatever reason, Paul sees fit to do exactly that. It's almost like he's saying also, though, that Felix, you may have authority of judgment over me, but remember who has the authority of judgment over you. One day you will stand, Felix, before the authority of the judge in heaven. And so what was Felix's response then? 
Well, I think it's obvious, given his alarm, uh, that it appears that Felix uh, was afraid and he puts Paul away and he says, I'll come to you when I want. But we also see that Felix did not relent, but he remained cold for all we can tell. He remained in a place of rejecting Christ, not only Christ, but also Paul as well. And so in the end, he left Paul to sit in this prison. He left him there for two whole years until at long last we're told at the end of the passage another governor would succeed Felix, a man named Portius Festus, who, as we'll see next week, would finally do something about Paul's case. He he himself will also hear a similar trial. He'll get up to speed on what is going on and why Paul is sitting in prison. And eventually he'll make a a decision to send Paul to the city of Rome. And so as we depart this evening, however, let us go then with that same joyful boldness of Paul seeking to tell anyone, no matter who it may be, about the gospel of Christ. May we have those things ringing in our ears, Christ's righteousness, our self-control that is empowered by the Spirit, and the fact that one day we will have to give an account before a righteous judge. May we do this, and we need not fear then, even that judgment for ourselves. We should have that kind of boldness because of Christ's righteousness. That judgment for us will not be the end of all things. Amen.